You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, Yahweh be with you. And they answered, Yahweh bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant, who was in charge of the reapers, answered, She is the young Moabite woman, who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now, listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes? that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner. But Boaz answered to her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. Yahweh repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by Yahweh, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my lord. For you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also, Pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today, and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law, with whom she had worked, and said, The man's name with whom I worked today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by Yahweh, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado, once again for episode 716 of this podcast. Today is Thursday, September 21st, 2023, and that was a reading of Ruth chapter 2. And Ruth chapter 2 is very similar to Ruth chapter 1, but it's even better. It's even happier. Ruth 1 starts out a bit sad, actually. Uh, it's this story of a Israelite 
man and his wife and their two sons who move away during a famine. And the man passes on. He dies. It doesn't say how he died, but he dies. And then his two adult sons, they get married. They marry Moabite women. And in due time, they also pass on. They also die. And it doesn't say how they died or why they died, but it does say that they did die. And then it's just this Israelite woman in a foreign land with her two Moabite daughters-in-law. And it's bittersweet, to say the least, that on the one hand, there are these circumstances which would be very trying, very sad. But then on the other hand, there's this kind of silver lining where one of the two daughters-in-law, when this Israelite woman says to both of them, go on home, go back to your parents, go find new husbands for yourselves, just leave me be. The Lord has made me bitter, all that. When Naomi says to her daughters-in-law, go ahead and go home. Go ahead, go back. I'm fine. It's fine. I understand. You need to do what's best for you. One of the daughters-in-law, yes, does go home and she goes on her way, but the other one pledges herself to Naomi and says, wherever you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And it's a tremendously brave thing. And it's a very honorable thing that Ruth does. She says it, but then she does it also. It's not this empty promise. It's not just words. It's not just virtue signaling. It's genuine virtue. This is a very virtuous act and orientation on the part of this Moabite woman, Ruth. But Ruth and Naomi, they go back to Bethlehem in chapter one, and the people of the town of Bethlehem gather together, and the women are talking about Naomi as if she's not there, right? They're talking about her in the third person, even though she's certainly able to hear them. And she tells them, don't call me Naomi. They say, is this Naomi? And she says, don't call me Naomi, for the Lord has made me bitter. Call me Mara. And that's that. And everybody goes home, right? There's no engagement with her, at least according to the text. Maybe if there was some engagement, it was very superficial. We don't know. We don't know what we don't know, but what we do know is what is said and what we do know is what's not said. And sometimes what's not said is as interesting as what is said, where really, actually, truly, Ruth sticks closer to Naomi than even her own people, the women of her own nation. When Naomi comes home, you might expect if there was a whole lot of justice to the way these things play out, for all the same reasons that Ruth maybe needs to tread lightly and be careful what fields she gleans in because she's not from around there, you would expect that there would be a welcome to Naomi. And yet what we find instead is it appears she is excluded and she's going to be kept at arm's length to some extent here. She's not going to be welcomed in. At least there's nothing in the text that indicates that she's being welcomed back. She's being talked about, not talked to. And this kind of a thing happens in small towns. Unfortunately, very unfortunately, when the sense of purpose and belonging and community is based too strongly on we're all from here, there can be a very exclusionary attitude acted on, acted out towards even people who are from there who go away and come back after a period of years. Ah, you know what? You're not really of us. If you were of us, you would have stayed, but because you left and you've come back, we're really not sure what to do with you. And so we're just going to ignore you. We're just going to pretend that you're not here because we don't have a category. We, we just don't. We don't have a category of people to put you into. You're not really a foreigner. You're not really a sojourner, Naomi, but you're also not really of us because you didn't stay the whole time like we did. We stuck around. We stayed close to home. You went away and came back. But in chapter two, Ruth chapter two here, you have Naomi behind the scenes really getting to 
advise Ruth after the fact. I mean, she gives a little bit of advice on the front end about being careful, right? But not really, not so much. There's a little bit of conversation in verse two. Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor, Ruth says. And Naomi says, go, my daughter. But that go, my daughter is a little bit of encouragement and probably quite a lot of trepidation as we see later on. At the end of the chapter, after the back and forth between Boaz and Ruth, then comes the warning. Then comes the caution from Naomi to Ruth about what field she's going to be gleaning in. You know what? If Boaz has offered you his protection and he's taking you under his wing and he's telling his young men not to bother you and he's telling everybody to make sure that you are well provided for and you are allowed to glean in his fields, stay in his fields, lest you go to some other field and the men there assault you. Although that said, who knows if it's only the men in some other field who would assault Ruth. It's not said. It's arguable that the assumption is the assault being described, being alluded to, is of a sexual nature, and that if Ruth, being a foreigner, were in some other field, well, the men would attack her and abuse her. But that's not expanded on a great deal. Enough said, right? Naomi is communicating something to Ruth, which is probably not lost on Ruth, because, oh, by the way, when Naomi and Ruth come back to Bethlehem, Naomi is talked about in the third person. Ruth is not even mentioned at all. There's zero interaction. If they're going to go on back to their homes after this brief interaction, talking about her instead of to her, and then her talking to them, but them not responding, they are going to really pretend that this Ruth gal is a non-factor. If they don't have a category quite for Naomi, they do have a category for Ruth. And that category is that she is a Moabite. She is not from here. She is from Moab. And they're going to be exclusionary, but they also might be hostile, right? In fact, in any small town, you will find some people who are very generous Just a word of wisdom here about small towns. You will find people who are very generous. You will find lots of people who look both ways before they cross the street as to how they're going to treat outsiders when they come in. They'll look at the generous folks. And if the generous folks have more sway in a given situation or are more vocal, the middle of the ground people who are most of the people will say, okay, we're just going to follow the lead of this generous person who was courageous enough, bold enough. And then you're going to have the other end of the spectrum. You're going to have the people who are looking for an excuse. They're not good people. They're not good characters just because they live in a small town. And those people are looking for an opportunity. They're not looking for ways that they can do the honorable thing. They're looking for when nobody else is looking to do an awful thing and to be predatory. But here we have Boaz. And Boaz is not just providing Ruth with a place to glean for food, for her and for Naomi. Boaz is offering protection. He's offering protection and in some sense, a dignity, not just the absence of abuse. So what Boaz does in inviting Ruth, you know, talking with her, who is this young woman? He is obviously noticing her. Who is this young woman? And then he finds out, because maybe he wasn't part of the assembled townspeople who came out when Naomi first returned, but he gets an answer, and then he engages Ruth in conversation. And he's very generous, and he's very respectful, and he's very polite to her, and he honors her. And he doesn't just honor her, again, with his words. He also demonstrates that he's honoring this woman. He gives her a blessing and he commends her, and he encourages her directly. So he's speaking to her and not about her. But then also he invites Ruth to sit and eat with them. Take a little bit of the bread and dip it in the wine and come, eat, have your fill. Would you like some more? Are you full? Okay, well, take some back with you to Naomi, please. 
And so what does Ruth do? She takes them back to Naomi. And even just the gesture of we're going to eat together is, it's not just hospitable. It is affirming and dignifying. Because what is it that they are being excluded from otherwise? Ruth and Naomi are being excluded from community involvement. How long are they here in Bethlehem before this? How much loneliness and being set apart and being ostracized is there? How many days or weeks or months? We don't know. However long it is, there's all kinds of uncertainty as to how this is going to go, particularly if Naomi can say the kind of thing to Ruth that she does about lest in another field you be assaulted. Within the range of possibilities is that Ruth would be assaulted and then what? She might be impregnated. She might be murdered. She might be harassed to the point where she gives up. And yes, she knows she made this pledge, but there's only so much that any one person can take. And maybe Naomi would release her from the pledge and tell her you need to go on home. Who knows? All of that uncertainty is of a piece with not being a part of this community, not being invited into a place of dignity and honor and justice and mercy in this community. And Boaz takes the initiative. Boaz is an honorable man. Boaz gives that dignity and that protection and that purpose and belonging he affirms to Ruth. And not just in relation to the community, also in relation to God. The blessing that Boaz pronounces over Ruth establishes that God might do such a thing. And that is a great testimony to the goodness of God and the character of the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Yahweh God. There is purpose and belonging for Ruth in relation to Boaz. There is purpose and belonging in relation to Naomi. There is purpose and belonging in relation to Yahweh God. And insofar as Boaz has authority to be able to tell his young men and his young women, hey, here's how you're going to treat Ruth. You're going to be polite to her. You're not going to rebuke her. You're not going to yell at her. You're not going to be rude and ugly and mean to her. You're going to let her do what I've given her permission to do, and I'm putting you all on notice. She is allowed to do this thing. I have instructed her to do this thing. You be helpful. Be polite. Be on your best behavior in relation to her. Now, Ruth has a sense of purpose and belonging in relation to these other people, or at least they're not going to interfere with this good thing which she has committed to doing, which is making whoever Naomi's people are, her people. Making whoever Naomi's God is, her God. Wherever Naomi will go, Ruth will go, Boaz is certifying that and being protective of that and honoring that and praising that. And he's recognizing the inherent goodness and nobility of that. And again, I say, this is a beautiful book. It's so wonderfully told and it's so refreshing. We need to meditate (laughs) on the character of Boaz, men. Be a guy like Boaz. Be a man like Boaz. And women, be a woman like Ruth. Ruth has exceptional character. Boaz has exceptional character. This is a love story. But it's not just the love between a man and a woman. This is also a love story about how a community can live and work together and be decent to each other. This is a story of love, of all kinds of love, not just of the love that grows, and it definitely does come about that Boaz and Ruth, spoiler alert, do get married, but this is not just about the love of a man for a woman. This is about love that a community can demonstrate for a man who is respected in the community. Maybe it's not all fear of Boaz and what he might do if they disregard his instructions. Maybe there's a lot of respect there and there's a lot of love for Boaz because this is the kind of character that he is. And his word carries a lot of weight. If he says, hey, this is the good thing to do, 
People believe it because they see that he does the right thing consistently. He's an honorable man, and they want to not lose his respect for them. They want to not be corrected and rebuked by him because his high opinion does not come easily. And wow, wait a second. We know how much we respect Boaz, and here is Boaz affirming and respecting and honoring and praising this Moabite woman. Interesting. So even in that regard, actually, Boaz is showing love for the people who are under his influence, the people who are under his instruction or who can be told by him, this is what I expect. This is what you're going to do. This is what you're not going to do. What is this? This is him instructing the young men and the young women under his care, under his supervision, under his authority in doing the right thing. He's teaching them to do the right thing. What is honorable? In part, he's teaching them by his own example, but then he's also giving them instructions and they are going to follow. They're going to follow those instructions. And actually what's interesting is Naomi doesn't for a moment doubt, at least there's no indication in the text that she doubts that Ruth will be safe in Boaz's fields. Boaz is not going to change his mind. And no, this is not just a clever ruse to get Ruth there on a regular basis so that Boaz can then be predatory. No, Boaz is going to, as we see, as we continue on in this book, he's going to be honorable towards Ruth. And all of that is going to build up to and finally culminate in they're getting married, which is great. Great always round. But let's take a look at some current events items and trends, more to the point. These current events are significant because they represent something about how we think of ourselves as a people and who represents us, who will speak for us, and what will they say? What is the character of the people who speak for us and who deliberate about our affairs? And they give the instructions. They give the instructions to regulate or to govern or to legislate they write the laws, they interpret the laws, they debate about the effects of the laws, whether to add more laws or to repeal existing laws. Let's talk a little bit about the U.S. Senate. Daniel Chaitin over at The Daily Wire published a piece just yesterday titled, Fetterman Presides Over Senate Wearing short sleeve Shirt, No Tie, and Shorts. And here the featured image is very stark. It's a stark contrast where you have Senator John Fetterman, Democrat from Pennsylvania, pictured walking through a doorway. And just think with me for a moment. Picture in your mind the Greco-Roman aesthetics. The tile on the floor is ornate, and it is reminiscent of the Greeks and the Romans. There's a dignity, there's a quality that is reminiscent of the Greeks and the Romans. The trim on the doorways on either side is very artistic. It's very decorative. And it's reminiscent of the Greeks and the Romans. You can't see the paintings that are hanging up on the wall except for the bottom corners, but you can see enough to notice that the frames are very ornate. And they're gold-colored, gold paint, and very ornate frames that are reminiscent of the Renaissance and reminiscent of, again, the Greeks and the Romans. And you can see ahead of John Fetterman, it looks to me like Dick Durbin, another Democrat senator from Illinois, wearing a suit and tie, walking rather soberly. But then you've got John Fetterman front and center in the photo, in the featured image by Al Drago, Bloomberg photographer. John Fetterman wearing a baggy shirt and shorts. He looks like he is there to deliver the mail. He looks like he is fresh off of some factory line. His head is shaved, bald, and He's got a big mustache, and he's got a very serious look on his face, and he's got 
what appears to be a tattoo on his right arm, which is visible because he's wearing a short-sleeved button-down shirt with the top buttons undone. And it appears as though in that hand on the right side, his right hand, he is holding a Joe Biden mask, like the kind that would have a popsicle stick and cardstock. It looks like he's got a Joe Biden mask of the very cheap kind, and he's wearing sneakers. To say that this is casual attire would be generous. In fact, this is not casual at all. This is slovenly. He is a United States senator, and they relaxed the dress code specifically for him so that he could become something of a visual metaphor for how the Democrats want to appeal to the working class, even though because of their printing of money to fund their schemes, their agenda, their wish lists, they have made the middle class and those who are poor much poorer still. But they want to appear to be the party of the working class, the party where the union auto worker is going to be heard and he's going to be represented. They don't want you to think first and foremost about being the party of the unions, except that they want you to associate the union itself with the working man and think no more about it. Don't think about whether these unions always actually really do represent well the individual workers. No, no. Don't think about whether the unions actually, in many cases, cause jobs to be destroyed and manufacturing to move overseas to other countries. Oh, you wanted more and more benefits? You wanted higher and higher wages? You wanted more and more time off? You wanted looser and looser restrictions on what you can and can't do performance-wise before you would get terminated or you'd be passed over for a promotion or we would hire somebody else to do your job and demote you? We'll just move our manufacturing somewhere else. The Democrats want to use John Fetterman as a prop. And they want the Republicans to be caught on hot mics, but also just very openly communicating a disdain and a frustration and a contempt for these kinds of antics so that the Democrats can say, ah, see, the Republicans are the party of the very rich. The Republicans are the party of the corporate executives and the owners of major corporations. We Democrats, we're the voice of the little people. We're the voice of the working man. See, we've got John Fetterman here. Mr. Smith goes to Washington. That's what you're supposed to think. But this guy is not competent to be a senator. When you think back to how our Congress was originally conceived, it was not supposed to be the case that you have one branch representing all of the masses in the legislative process with one chamber. It was discussed. Some states tried the unicameral approach, and there was not enough of a check and a balance on bad legislation. And so what they decided way back when, and Alexis de Tocqueville writes about this in Democracy in America, 1831, what was decided was that we needed a bicameral legislature so that on the one hand, you would have the aristocrats represented in the Senate, where the very best men, two from each state, the very best men would preside and they would debate and they would officiate. And the very best men would probably be men who were coming from good families with strong reputations. They would probably be men who came from multi-generational wealth that had been built up, preserved, grown, passed down. The best men, the aristocrats, that's what aristocrat means, best men, the rule of the best men, the aristocratic class would preside in the Senate, but then the House of Representatives would be 
the populace, the vox populi. The House of Representatives would be comprised of representatives based on the population of states. And this is why the House of Representatives is called the House of Representatives. And this is why when we say that they are representatives, they're congressmen, we say that they're representatives because they represent a share of population in their states. And they're voted in, in much more of a popular way. And they are not necessarily the best men, so to speak, but they are representative of the masses. They're representative of the forces of democracy. And on the other hand, you have the Senate, which is much more indicative of here's who the best people, not the most people, but the best people think would be best to write our laws. These are the people that the best people think would be best to write the best laws or to preside over and debate and ratify the voice or modify or check and balance the will and whim of the masses. When you don't have the House and the Senate being distinguished from one another, when the Senate just becomes an extension of the House of Representatives, and it's not comprised of the best men, then you really don't have a check and a balance. So what you might have is some people looking at the optics of what's happening in the Senate right now. You might have some people looking at it and saying, hey, you know what? Those senators, they've been in there far too long, and they look stuffy, and they look pretentious, and they look a bit elitist. And here's the little secret. They're supposed to, actually. (laughs) Comparatively, they are supposed to. And the House of Representatives is supposed to be more common. The Senate is supposed to be more elite because, yes, even the elites should have representation in our government. What you don't want is the demonization of the best men to where you produce a negative incentive, you de-incentivize, you penalize being cultivated and being of means and being cultured and coming from multi-generational acclaim, renowned wealth. If you stigmatize being the best men, then you will have the worst men. If you stigmatize being from multiple generations of fame and fortune, then you will have people begin to think that infamy is where it's at, right? If fame is bad for doing deeds of daring do, then infamy must be good. And if wealth is to be stigmatized, and particularly multi-generational wealth built up, preserved, passed down, stewarded well, if wealth is stigmatized, then you will have people thinking that poverty is a virtue and that the poorer we are, the more virtuous we are. And if there's a surplus in our budget, well, then that's somehow proof that we've done something wrong. Right? The more the deficit is, the harder you know we're trying to do the right thing, that kind of thing. But this is defining down degeneracy that the rules would basically be repealed. They're informal, but then they should be formalized. If there should be a dress code, it's not specifically all that important that you wear the suit and the tie for the suit and the tie's sake, but for what it represents. And so also saying, we're not going to observe these rules. We're going to repeal them. We're going to publicly admonish the rules themselves by having John Fetterman get up in shorts and a t-shirt looking very slovenly as a senator. What you're communicating in that case is you don't think that the other senators dressing up deserves any special honor, nor do you think that the Senate itself deserves any special honor. On the one hand, this is shameful because senators should have some respect for their fellow senators and for themselves. On the other hand, this is shameful because all alike should have respect for the institution of the Senate. But then we're talking about the Democrats. And the Democrats want progress, but then They don't actually want progress anymore. They say they want progress, but really, as Ben Shapiro 
has noted, the Democrat Party is increasingly the party of transgression. And why they think this is a good idea is because it's transgressive. It doesn't actually serve any purpose, any useful purpose to tell John Fetterman, no, you can't show up in shorts and a t-shirt. No, you can't show up to the Senate wearing a hoodie and sweatpants. It serves no benefit in their minds, but there's a lot of benefit as they see it politically to say, yeah, anything goes. You can wear whatever. Wear whatever. Well, let me ask you this. What if John Fetterman shows up without a shirt on? If you say there's no dress code whatsoever, what if he shows up in the buff? He just says, you know what? I'm going to go to work not wearing anything today. Au natural. Will they then say, oh, wait, okay, you know what? We do have standards. See, if we think of this as binary, all or nothing, then we'll say, well, at least he's wearing clothes, right? He's wearing anything, and that's good enough. But then again, remember that the purpose of the Senate is to be a check from essentially the nobility of our country, the most noble men, the men of the most noble character, or the men who are at least thought to be of the most noble character of each state, a check against the vox populi, which is easily manipulated. It's too easy to manipulate the masses either by bribing them or bullying them. It's too easy to whip them into a frenzy into making wrong decisions if somebody is particularly adept at working a crowd. You need the best men you meet. You need those who are a bit stuffy and elitist, who are going to look with disdain on the harebrained notion and the demagogue they're not going to be impressed by and they don't need his bribes and they're not feeling intimidated when he tries to bully them. You need the best men, the nobles, the aristocrats to provide a check on the worst inclinations, the worst tendencies, the worst vulnerabilities of groupthink among the masses of society. The Democrats are trying to not just transgress in a general sense, but they're trying to tra- they're trying to transgress here in a intentional way that is going to blur or else abolish the distinction, and in some ways, goad Republicans into something that can then be twisted and turned into ah, see that's what they think of the working class, right? John Fetterman is just dressing like an everyman, like the common man, but see he's not supposed to be in the Senate, dressing like every man. He's supposed to be dressing like the best men. And that's really the point. This is a way of mocking the best men, but mocking them with the hopes that the Republicans will be reactive and will take the bait, and that can be turned into fodder for the next election cycle. That's what this is really about. But think about this in relation to Ruth chapter 2. Consider that Ruth, being a foreigner, could have any number of things happen to her if it's just the voice of the people that's going to be heard, if it's just the will of the people that is going to be done to Ruth. The indication we've got right up till Boaz is introduced is that she's likely to be excluded. The will of the people will be to exclude her, but then after Boaz has come into the picture, and Naomi finds out that that's where Ruth was gleaning. Then comes the quiet part. Naomi says the quiet part out loud, which she didn't necessarily want to terrify or make nervous Ruth about, but maybe it was just presumed, it was assumed that that was a risk. If she's going to go out and try and get some food and bring it back, maybe it was just assumed, of course, she should know. But now that there's an out, whereas there wouldn't have been any good that could have come from warning Ruth before, now that there's an out, it's important that you stay in Boaz's fields. And here's why. Now that that's known, the will of the people would likely, one, not offer any provision to Ruth and Naomi, apart from Boaz saying, don't rebuke her. What would they have done, presumably? They would have rebuked her. They would have said, hey, this is not yours. This is ours. You're not from around here. Get out of here. Don't take that. No, no, no. That's not yours. Go. Go on. Boaz tells them to not do the thing that they likely would have done, 
apart from Boaz telling them not to do it. As in, they would have rebuked her. And then she would have just been destitute and Naomi by extension as well. And the will of the people would have been content with that, to let the worst men be the voice of the people. But besides that, the will of the people, apart from Boaz, who is an aristocrat in this case, he is the nobility, he shows noble character, and that's part of how you know he is an aristocrat. He's of that class, the best men. He has means, he has fields, he has people who listen when he tells them what to do and what to not do. But apart from him, the will of the people would have been content to either actively or passively see to it that Ruth was driven off and not provided for, and also that she was assaulted and not protected. Boaz does not intervene to say he's going to offer provision and protection, except that that's very much in doubt whether Ruth, and by extension Naomi, will get provision and protection otherwise. They'll be deprived if Boaz doesn't say something And Ruth, in particular, will be preyed on, probably sexually, certainly socially, otherwise. But then what's interesting is you have not just a one-way street, and it's not all Boaz. There are others in the story. They're not named, but they are the people. And those others who are the people who are under Boaz's influence and under his authority, and they're working on his fields, they apparently comply. And there's an expectation that they will comply on Ruth's part. And when Ruth tells Naomi, on Naomi's part. So here's the big question. What if there was no difference between Boaz and the young men and the young women working those fields? What if those fields didn't belong to anybody, they just belonged to everybody? What then would be the protection for a woman like Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi? If there was no distinction whatsoever, for that matter too, we don't know, right? Nothing is said about how everybody was dressed, but would it surprise you? We'll put it that way. Would it surprise you if it turned out you jumped in a time machine, you went back and you observed all of this? Would it surprise you if Boaz was wearing distinguished clothing in keeping with his status in the community, in keeping with his respect for others, in keeping with his respect for himself? in keeping with his reverence towards God. Would it surprise you if he was wearing nicer clothing because he does have fields after all compared with those who work in the fields? It wouldn't surprise me at all. In fact, I would guess it's probable, it's very likely, it's all but certain that Boaz was dressed better, not a suit and tie, I'm sure, but he was dressed better than those who were working in his fields. In part because throughout the whole world, throughout all of human history, that's part of how we set apart and distinguish ourselves when we want to convey extraordinary respect and reverence even in given situations. That's also part of how we signal who has status and who doesn't have status is we wear things, right? We wear things to communicate our intentions. Say, for instance, for example, I wear a wedding ring to communicate my intentions to be a married man. My wife wears a wedding ring to communicate her intentions to be a married woman. If anybody encounters me or my wife and they see the wedding ring on that ring finger on the left hand and they know that they're not married to us, then they know that we're married to somebody else. That's what we're trying to communicate by wearing a wedding ring. For another example... I just got back from Wyoming last night after driving up Sunday afternoon, being there Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday this week for work, and I was doing automation testing, and I was working on these oil and gas sites, and part of the dress code is you wear safety gear. You wear flame-retardant clothing and a hard hat and safety glasses and a four-gas monitor and steel-toe or safety-toe shoes. And depending on what you're doing, you might wear gloves, but in my case, I'm working on a computer, so I didn't wear gloves. But you wear the attire when you show up for work that communicates that you are there to work. And if you don't, then the company representatives, knowing the safety rules, safety policies, will ask you to leave and you'll be in trouble. If you were there to work, 
and you're wanting to get paid and you're wanting to maintain employment, you'd best come dressed for the work. And if you don't come dressed for the work, then you're going to be asked to leave. And that's what it is. And I say this as a working man, as I thought, member of the middle class, but then with inflation, I'm probably part of the lower class now. Again, more and more of us are going to be in the lower class because inflation drives us all into living to pay the rent, working just to put food on the table, paycheck to paycheck. But I was asked, right? I was asked by a coworker I was doing this testing with and commissioning with this week if I had steel-toed shoes. And he looked down at my feet and he said, do you have steel-toed shoes? I said, yeah, I do. He says, well, you should probably get them on. And I said, oh, no, no, these are, right? These are safety toe. These are steel toe shoes. He says, oh, okay. And the reason he asked, right? The reason he asked is because my shoes looked like sneakers. They didn't look like steel-toed boots. A lot of guys, they wear leather boots, steel-toed boots. You can tell, hey, those are work boots. What I wear, they look like sneakers, but they are actually safety toe. If you stomp on my toes when I'm wearing them, you'll know, hey, okay, yep, sure enough. But my point in bringing that up is I'm communicating intentions. And if it's fuzzy, if it's not clear that I've actually showed up dressed for work, I'm going to get talked to about it. And the dress code is not just because, hey, people like making up rules and these are arbitrary rules. You can't tell me what to do. Well, I'm sorry, but the whole basis, the whole pretext for having a House and a Senate in the first place is to deliberate the rules that we're all going to live under. If the people who go to come up with the rules like to come up with rules for everyone and everything, everything has to be regulated, everything has to be legislated, everything has to be mandated, everything has to be taxed, but they themselves don't even want the most simple and basic of rules to be imposed on them, then we're dealing with lawless men who want to preside over the lawmaking process. And that's very dangerous. And it is very dangerous. Not hypothetically, but actually. At a surface level, you would say, showing up in shorts and a frumpy-looking button-down T-shirt is no big deal. Yeah, whatever. No, no. This is symbolic for a general disdain and contempt and a desire to sow division for the purpose of scoring political points, trying to pick a fight, but that is to say, one thing more than anything, power. Being willing to tear it all down in the pursuit of power. Now, just hypothetically, okay? Hypothetically, if I were elected to the U.S. Senate, which I don't anticipate. I'm not running. I don't anticipate that I'm going to be elected to uh, the Senate. But if I were to run, and if I were to get elected, and by golly, if John Fetterman can be in there, anybody, right? Anybody could be a senator. If John Fetterman could be a senator, But if I were to go and they were to say, hey, listen, because John Fetterman is the working man's senator and he's representative of the everyman, he pioneered and trailblazed and now nobody has to wear a suit and tie. So you could just wear whatever you want. What I would choose to do, what I would embrace out of respect for the institution, out of respect for our constitution out of respect for our traditions, which in this regard are very wise and very good and very honorable, I would choose to show up wearing a suit and a tie and nice shoes and a nice belt with my hair combed, my facial hair neatly cut, trimmed, groomed. I would show up dressed for the occasion to honor and respect those I represent, my state, to honor my fellow senators, but more importantly, to honor this whole idea that these are the best men who are gathering together to deliberate with due reverence for God, with sobriety, what the laws of the land will be and won't be. Speaking as someone who has worked in (laughs) lower middle class to upper middle class jobs for over a decade now, I don't know exactly where you would place what I do right now for work, but speaking as somebody who is working class and comes from working class, I don't come from money. I don't come from 
multiple, multiple generations of the rich and the famous, wives of the rich and famous. I find Fetterman's attire to be offensive and obnoxious and distracting and disqualifying. Not the first thing, but just another brick in the wall as far as why he should not be a senator and why the Democrats should not be in charge of our government. It's a shameful thing that they want to destroy whatever they can't control. It's a shameful, shameful thing because a lot of these things that they're tearing down and they're denigrating are very good, honorable things. But then these Democrats are not good, honorable men and women. They're not. They might purport to be. They might want to be treated with respect, but they're not respectable in the way that they conduct themselves, in the way that they talk, in the positions that they advocate for and argue for. John Fetterman here is showing a profound lack of respect for those who came before him, for those he is serving with right now, and also for those he's representing. Even if a lot of the people he's representing and a lot of the people in America who look on at this are more inclined to shrug and say, what's the big deal? And actually, that's the point, right? The point is to be transgressive and to make transgression so normative that the only real transgression will be to object to other people being transgressive. That's the big idea. That's the new morality. We're going to do naughty things, sometimes publicly with the utmost intention and deliberateness and stubbornness, just to try and bait you into objecting so that we can make you into the transgressive one. That's the game. That's the game that's being played here. And it is a wicked, wicked thing, even though a lot of people are going to be like, yeah, who cares? Who cares what he's wearing? I mean, think about weddings and funerals for a moment. I've been to several funerals in the last several years. My grandparents all have passed on now, and I went to three out of the four funerals. The fourth, my grandmother Renew, I did not I did not attend because of very broken dynamics in that side of the family. Also COVID. Also it being Florida and people up here in Colorado, a lot of people up here in Colorado being very weird, very strange about these sorts of things. The timing of it did not coincide with what seemed to me a prudent decision to go and to honor my grandmother's memory, and to honor my mother after a fashion, since she was not going to go. But the three funerals that I did attend for my grandparents, I wore a suit and tie and nice shoes. As a matter of fact, my grandpa, Renu, being the first of my grandparents who passed on, I bought a suit that I probably could not afford. I certainly would not be able to afford it now, but even at the time, it was a bit of a stretch to buy the suit and also the tickets, and also the hotel, and also to rent the car, and also to pay for the food. It was a pretty expensive thing to go to Florida for my grandpa Renew's funeral. And I don't regret it for a moment that I bought the suit, and the nice shoes, and the nice belt. I got my hair cut, and I showed up dressed well because I wanted to honor my grandfather at his funeral. When my grandparents' mullet passed on, I wore that same suit. I keep on wearing it. Depending on the wedding, when I go to a wedding, if I know that the people who are getting married are very informal and this is not going to be a formal thing, well, I don't want to wear a suit that would cause me to stand out and make other people uncomfortable. And so I'll dress informally. But if I think, if I have any reason to believe that other men, say for instance, the groom and the groomsman, are going to be wearing suits and ties, I also will show up in a suit and a tie out of respect for the couple getting married, out of respect for this new married couple starting their life. I want to honor the institution of marriage. I want to honor them. And I also want to show some self-respect and show up in a suit. You know, it's funny when you look back at photos and videos from a century plus ago, all the men, even the very poor, all the men on the street were wearing suits. Unless they were working in a factory, they were shoveling coal into some boiler. If they were walking around on the streets, they were wearing suits. And maybe they weren't deluxe 
You know, there were nicer suits and there were less nice suits, but they were wearing suits. There was a respect and a dignity that was common and it was expected. And now even a U.S. senator can't be troubled to wear a suit to the Senate when he's presiding over the Senate. But again, this is some people's idea of progress that they would be systematically transgressive so that they can draw out those who would object and make those people out to be transgressors. What is the transgression? Objecting to what somebody else has chosen to wear or do. Yes, you're free to wear whatever you want. You're free to walk around naked too. You are free to do these things, but not without comments, not without consequences. You are signaling and communicating your intentions when you dress the way that you dress. And if your intentions are honorable, then you should dress honorably. If your intentions are to show up to do the work, then you should dress for the occasion, showing up like you're ready to work. If this is an oil and gas production facility, then put on your FRC shirt, pants, put on your safety glasses and your hard hat and your safety toe shoes and be there on time and be there to work. If you're there to sort packages at the UPS terminal, well, then wear what John Fetterman is wearing here to the Senate. But if you're showing up to be a U.S. Senator, United States Senator, if you're showing up to preside over the Senate, put on a suit and a tie and nice shoes and stand up straight, shoulders back, chin out, show some respect for your fellow senators and those who came before and the institution itself, and yes, the states who elected you and sent you there, unless they didn't really. Unless that's just one of the transgressions that you're not quite ready to be public about just yet. You cheat, you lie, you steal elections, you send some goofball like this to the Senate to be lawless and to make a mockery of our legislative branch. Personally, I find that to be the most likely explanation, but all we can really do, honestly, ourselves, is say we are going to dress in an honorable way. We're going to communicate our intentions to respect God, to respect one another, and we're not going to applaud this, and we're not going to join in with mocking and deriding any who object to the transgressive nature of the radical left in our day. We're not going to join in with the many to do what is wicked or to affirm those who do what is wicked, those who are dishonorable and dishonest and who sow discord and division among brothers. We're not going to join in with them. We're not going to spread a false report. We're not going to jump on bandwagons. We're going to adhere to what is true and good and honorable and think on these things, whatever is excellent and praiseworthy, think on these things. But then all of that's predicated on Fearing God, obeying God, loving God, trusting God, keeping his commandments. You can't do justice when you don't know justice because your whole life is dedicated to rebellion against God. But if you do know God and you do love God and you do fear God and you do trust God and you do want to honor him, you can study his word and you can know what is honorable to do in the sight of all. You can show respect for others instead of being a walking, talking testimony to unbridled vanity and selfish ambition and conceit. You can look to the interests of others. You can provide things honest in the sight of all men. You can let your light so shine before all men that they will see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. That should be the aspirational model, not to see how low we can set the bar so low, in fact, that people trip over it, have to step over it. But going back to the story, this item, this bit of news, I'll share with you one more report on this same subject from Alex Nitzberg over at The Blaze, also published yesterday. Dressing down GOP senators and even the Washington Post editorial board object to Schumer's Senate dress code decision. Alex Nitzberg writes, Nearly every Republican senator has signed onto a letter pressing Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Democrat from New York, to reverse course after the lawmaker recently moved to ditch the chamber's dress code for senators. Axios reported that Schumer directed the chamber's sergeant-at-arms not to uphold the Senate's informal 
dress code for senators. Quote, senators are able to choose what they want to wear on the Senate floor. I will continue to wear a suit. End quote. Quote, allowing casual clothing on the Senate floor disrespects the institution we serve and the American families we represent. We, the undersigned members of the United States Senate, write to express our supreme disappointment and resolute disapproval of your recent decision to abandon the Senate's longstanding dress code for members and urge you to immediately reverse this misguided action, a letter to Schumer signed by 46 GOP senators states. Democratic Senator John Fetterman of Pennsylvania presided over the chamber on Wednesday while wearing shorts and a short-sleeved shirt. And here is a quote from Senator John Fetterman of Pennsylvania. And I quote, If those Jagoffs in the House stop trying to shut our government down and fully support Ukraine, then I will save democracy by wearing a suit on the Senate floor next week. End quote. Now, in case it's not obvious, this term, Jagoff, J-A-G-O-F-F, one word, is said to be popular in Western Pennsylvania. It is thought to have originated around the 1930s. It means an annoying, contemptible, or inconsequential person. A jagoff is a jackoff, but to jack off means to masturbate. So in other words, you have a United States senator publicly tweeting out as of yesterday morning, about 9.30 a.m., tweeting out about congressmen, representatives in the actual house of the people, the people's house, calling them jackoffs, calling them masturbators. For what? Why? Oh, but he's not done yet, right? He's not done refusing to observe decorum or showing respect for his fellow legislators, duly elected. He says they're trying to shut our government down. Are they trying to shut our government down or is their job to deliberate and to say, hey, whoa, wait a second, our spending is out of control and some of the things that you're spending the money on are not good and we need to discuss this. No, 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 we're not going to discuss this. I'm going to call you vile, crude things publicly and then you're just going to do whatever I want. You want me to put on a suit? You're going to do what I want. Okay, well, then I guess what you're really wanting is to subvert the whole institution and to have it not be deliberative, but to have it be dominated entirely, well and truly, by the Democrat Party, which is not actually for democracy, really, as it turns out, if the people are also voting democratically to send Republicans to the House and the Senate. No, no. No, we don't regard that part of the demos. We just demonize them call them ugly, awful things. Fully support Ukraine. What does that even mean? Right? Fully support Ukraine. Fully support Ukraine. If the Republicans disagree with some of what you're filing under support Ukraine, if they say, hey, wait a second, we need to double check some of the figures here because you're not even keeping track of the weapons, munitions, equipment, supplies, money that you're sending to Ukraine, how it's going to be used, whether it's needed, whether we should be the ones sending it when our economy is doing the way that it's doing, but he's not done yet, right? He's still not done. John Fetterman says, then I will save democracy by wearing a suit. So he's a scoffer, right? He's a mocker. This is not genuine. This is still more contempt. This is just seething with contempt for Republicans, contempt for the institution of the Senate, contempt for our bicameral legislature, contempt for America. I'll save democracy by wearing a suit. You won't save anything. No, you won't. This guy should never have been installed in the first place. And if you ask me, he should be removed. He should be censured. He should be removed. This guy is bad news. And the Democrats who rally around him are bad news. This is bad for our country, always round. The attitude, right? The attitude that is communicated non-verbally, with how he presided over the Senate, dressed the way that he was, and also this tweet, but his whole way of relating is unbecoming of a senator. Even the Washington Post, though, Alex Nitzberg writes, even the Washington Post gave a thumbs down to Schumer's dress code move, quote, we vote nay. Dressing formally conveys respect for the sanctity of the institution and for the real world impact of the policies it advances. 
Putting on a suit creates an occasion for lawmakers to reflect, just for a moment, on the special responsibilities with which the people have entrusted them and on a deliberative process that at least aspires to solemnity, end quote. The editorial board wrote, and of course that's correct. I agree. I agree. That's what's at issue here. That's what's at stake. Axios reported that it was unclear if the chamber's dress code is really a formal written policy, noting that it seems to be an informal custom upheld by the sergeant at arms. The New York Times reported that there's not a formal written dress code, but that senators have long been informally obliged to sport business attire. Now, we all know, right? We all know, and it doesn't need to be written down. At the point where you have to write these things out explicitly, we're not dealing with people who should actually be senators. If you have to be told to wear a suit to preside over the Senate, you should not be presiding over the Senate. If you have to be told to show up to work wearing a suit when everybody else is wearing a suit and they have been for a very long time, if you have to be told that that's what's appropriate, then you are in the wrong place. You should not have been elected in the first place or your party should not have stolen the election on your behalf and propped you up in the first place. This is wrong all ways round, and it's transgressive. But again, with the silver lining, as Marcus Aurelius would say, these little frustrations need to be reinterpreted as people behaving according to their nature. John Fetterman is showing what he's made of. The Democrat Party is showing what they're made of. The people who argue in defense of this, or they shrug and they say, that's no big deal. Who cares? This is just politics as usual. They're showing what they're made of. They're showing that their nature is such that they would say these kinds of things and take these kinds of positions and dress that way and act that way. Don't let it get under your skin. Do object calmly, clearly, be virtuous. You could get angry. You could get upset. You could say, I'm going to tune out. I'm going to check out. I'm going to also behave badly. Or you could say, this is an opportunity for virtue to be defended and to be embodied. Be virtuous. Stop debating about what a good man should do and be, be one. Do what a good man should do and let the chips fall where they will. It's more likely we will have a good outcome that is honorable in the eyes of the good Lord above, in the eyes of our countrymen, and in the eyes of the world, other nations looking at us, if someone, and as many someones as possible would be excellent, are instructed again as to upright conduct, virtue, respect, dignity, decorum, sobriety, self-control, moderation, temperance in the best sense. Without that kind of self-control, we cannot say that we love one another. We can only say that we love ourselves and we cannot say that we love God because God would call us to showing honor to all to whom honor is due. That's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.